The Talking Stigma podcast featured Gareth Thomas and me, Craig Doyle, talking to other well-known guests about stigma and how we can make stigma a thing of the past through knowledge and education. Listen to Gareth talking about his HIV-positive diagnosis, how people have treated him, how he has felt since he announced his status back in September 2019, and how through scientific advances, being on effective treatment means the levels of HIV are so low in his system that the virus cannot be passed on through sexual contact. The intimate discussions draw on personal insights of Gareth and other special guests, comparing and contrasting their experiences of stigma. Hello all, you're very welcome to Tackle HIV with Gareth Thomas and the Talking Stigma podcast series. I'm Craig Doyle and throughout this series I'm talking to Gareth and other well-known guests about stigma and resilience. What's it like to be discriminated against, to suffer prejudice, to be stigmatised? How does it feel? What do you do about it? Do people support you? What can you do to get people to support you? These are all the subjects and all the topics we've been discussing throughout this series with some really, really interesting results. And that continues today. A really, really good guest coming your way in today's podcast, who I introduce in just a moment. First of all, though, Garrett Thomas, how are you? On top of the morning. Top of the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know any Welsh. What would, I mean, I only know the Welsh word diach, right? Is there a Welsh? What do Welsh With all is all right. With all. Where, where? With all. Yeah, I'm not saying that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Come here, you look kind of well for the... F- like, everyone else looks stressed out from lockdown. You're looking like it's all right. Mate, I've made the effort today. It's the only time in 12 months that I've had the opportunity to put something on apart from a tracksuit. So I thought I'll go for it today. I'll make an effort. Do you remember one of the first times we worked together, Rugby World Cup, and we were based in London before we went to New Zealand, and we were doing a game that kicked off at four o'clock in the morning. And you arrived into the studio as an ITV at three o'clock in the morning, stinking of brandy and awful aftershave, right? And you had a basketball <laughs> shirt on and a pair of shorts and boots. Do you remember? And you'd just come straight from a club or something. I had a stamp for the nightclub on my hand. <laughs> it was on television and my mother was texting me saying, wash your hands because I had stamps from all the nightclubs I'd been in London on my arm. <laughs> oh, nightclubs, pubs, eh? Um, we have a really good guest, so I think we should introduce him straight away. Um, because we're kind of getting to the very core of what this whole podcast series is about with our guest today. So let me introduce him. He is Nathaniel Hall, an actor and theatre maker who most recently starred as Donald Bassett in Channel 4's It's a Sin, the brilliant It's a Sin. It's a really powerful show if you haven't seen it. And it depicts the lives of a group of gay men and their friends. And I'm highlighting friends because actually one of the real striking points of it is is the friendships for me when I watched it. Um, They lived together during the 80s just as the HIV epidemic starts to unfold. Um, And I guess there was a lot of ignorance at the time. And when you look back at some of the stuff in the series, it really is shocking. We're going to be discussing that. Like Gareth, though, Nathaniel is HIV positive and is prominent in his activism to help tackle the stigma and misunderstanding around HIV. He's written and performed his award-winning one-man show, First Time, an autobiographical, I can't even say it, autobiographical show about attempting to stay positive in a negative world. Um, He's a very interesting guy, and I'm delighted to say... He joins us now. Nathaniel, how are you? Should we? I think, yeah. That's a round of applause. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, Not often we give a round of applause. 
Oh uh, yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, I'm I'm great. Yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling surprisingly fresh. I had real lockdown fatigue at the start of this week, but but this knowing this interview has just perked me right up at the end on this, on this Friday. So yeah, I'm feeling great. Shall we do uh, wallpaper plants that kind of thing first before we get into the meat and veg of the conversation? Do you want to go on the interior design? All, all all I can say is we've done a lot of zooms, and Nathaniel's background is out of ten. I'd give it a strong fifteen. Fifteen. Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah. It's it's like it's nailing it. Do you know what? There's 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 actually an account, an Instagram account for Zoom backgrounds, but I don't think mine has made it onto it yet. I think it's more bookcases they're looking for. Oh. But I know I know Russell Russell T Davies, the writer of It's a Sin, his book his bookcase background has made it onto that Instagram account because it is absolutely incredible it's like it's it's like he's sat in a library but it's actually his own bookcase i am on that account um i like your framing you'd know that you're a man of theater and film the framing is absolutely perfect um it's a sin has been a huge success in many ways not just because people have enjoyed the drama of it all but it's it started some really important conversations nathaniel um give everyone an idea what the show is all about yeah, so the show is about, I guess, a, a part of history that we haven't seen um, explored in this kind of depth on British television yet. You know, HIV and AIDS as the epidemic, um, you know, the last 40 years, it has been dealt with. We have we have seen it in, in a number of um, big plays, you know, Angels in America, The Normal Heart by Larry Kramer. We've seen some American films about it and some European films, but we've not really had something on British telly that really looks at that moment in history. And and for the most part, in terms of the UK's um, sort of response to HIV, it's quite a shameful part of our history. So it's been amazing because this, uh, this month is LGBT History Month and it's been incredible to see that story, those stories, those lives sort of honoured and validated in such a great way. So the show, like you said, follows... Um, you know, a group of young young friends, um, some of whom are gay, who all move. Um, it's small. It's the small town boy story, you know. Um, so they all move from various small towns and areas of, of the UK to London, the bright lights of London, to find work, to find friends, to find love. Um, and then, uh, but sadly, it's 1981, and it's the year that that HIV and AIDS um, starts to appear on the scene. And throughout the series throughout this, which follows them through 10 years, we see how that impacts their lives um, in, in a really devastating kind of way. Did you, did you know when you was making it or did you think when you was making this that it would have the impact and people would engage with it in the way they did? Because as you said, hey, we, we, are, we do have a lot of ignorance um, and there hasn't been much proactiveness around HIV in the UK. So did you think that that would be, because it's so, you know, HIV AIDS strong, did you think that people would engage with it in the way they have? Do you know, do you know what really surprised me is I, I knew it would make waves in the LGBT community because it's Russell T Davis, like, you know, like Queer as yeah, Foe, yeah. you know, his work, and his, his work in Doctor Who, you know, which has a, a very sort of LGBTQ slant as well. You know, I knew for our, for our community, it was going to be very special. And we took it really seriously, I think, on set. And the whole team, we wanted to make sure that we honoured these stories, you know, and, and showed, the, showed the, the fun and the life and the love as well as, you know, the tragedy of it all. But I don't think any of us really expected the impact that it would have beyond that. Um, and one of, my, one of my biggest worries was actually 
that it would sort of let old myths resurface. Mm. So, you know, in It's a Sin, we see people scrubbing cups, smashing them, throwing the bin, you know, going in the shower after they've been near someone with HIV. And I was like, oh, my God, I really hope that those attitudes don't come back to the surface. But the absolute opposite has been the case. And we've just seen HIV like on the national in on a national conversation like we've never seen it before and i think you know in the in the show we see the the tombstone adverts the very very famous tombstone adverts um which you know some people argue were very effective because they stopped people having sex but mm. other people would say it filled lots of people with sexual anxiety for many many years um but we've never had anything on a national scale to say how HIV has changed, you know, and that it's a manageable condition, that you can't pass it on if you're on effective treatment. So what It's a Sin has done is given all the amazing charities and activists like yourself, Gareth, and, you know, the hundreds of other activists across the country this moment to just jump on that conversation and go, guys, HIV has changed and we can end it. You know, within we can end new transmissions within 10 years if we work together. Mm. Well, do you know what I, I thought was very smart about it? guys is that um it abides by the rules of of good drama good storytelling so and and I'm going to have to admit to something I've only been able to watch the first one because there's a lot of kids in my house and there's a lot of bonking in this okay <laughs> <laughs> and you know so but but even in the first one um the emotions high low but what they did at the very start is we were introduced to the characters we like the characters we've empathy for the characters it humanized hiv Nathaniel, that's so, so important when you reflect on those adverts, uh, you know, going back then, it, it dehumanised people. This is doing the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the, those tombstone adverts were just basically like, oh, if you, if you get this thing, that's it. You're in a, you know, you're, you're in a coffin. Um, and there was no human element to that. And when you think about the, the response to, to coronavirus, which is a very different epidemic, and, you know, the two are not really that comparable. But when you think about the compassion that we might have seen in the advertising around that, about how to look after one another, how to protect one another, you know, sharing that information rather than scaremongering or saying that these people are dangerous. Um, you, you can see you can see how the stigma around HIV um, was became so ingrained. And obviously it was you know very much also interlinked with the homophobia at the time, you know, the home, in the 1980s and 90s, Britain was a profoundly homophobic place. Um, but, you know, and in the press, um, you know, in, in parliamentary life. Um, so so the two were really interlinked. And, and, it, and I think it is said in the final episode, it's not really a spoiler this, but in the final episode, someone says, you know, the perfect virus came along to to kind of prove you right, your homophobia right. It was like the perfect way you, you can weaponize that against gay men straight away and we know though that hiv doesn't only affect gay men you know yeah. it disproportionately affects men who have sex with men but over 50 percent of people live with hiv are heterosexuals so so yeah it, it, it's incredible the 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 power of the stigma and the shame that that sort of was set in motion in the 1980s that we're still unpicking today i, I think that for me uh, when i watched it because i watched it with 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 my husband, I sat down with with Steve, and I watched the first episode, and then we realised because we're not very like techy that we could actually download all of it and watch it all at once. So I sat there, and I remember I went to bed with this, such a mix of emotions, and I kissed him, and I said, "I'm kissing you right now because I can," and I just realised that 
40 years ago, I couldn't even be living in the same house as you, let alone kiss you. And I went to bed as somebody who didn't really face discrimination in the 80s or 90s, because even though it was there, I didn't really relate to any of it. And I went to bed and I cried. I cried and cried just because I realised, I felt I was really lucky. And now I'm questioning whether I'm lucky because you see this obvious discrimination, as you said, the cleaning of the cups, the posting of poo through the letterbox, this locking people in rooms, this obvious discrimination from the 80s. And I feel, even though we haven't got that obvious discrimination, we still have maybe an obvious discrimination to try and deal with, which is kind of a pandemic in itself. It's something that actually can be deemed more painful. Now, I know you're living with HIV. So do you see that an obvious form of discrimination? Yeah, I think what it is, is that, you know, stigma is such a really difficult concept to kind of unpick. Unless you're stigmatised yourself, unless you feel it, unless you're in a minority, it's very hard to communicate. Um, And I think one of the ways I try and explain it to people is how um, the Black Lives Matter movement has tried to help us understand racism in all its forms, you know, in the last year. You know, you don't you don't need to shout a racist slur to be racist. There are structures in the ways in which our society is built that mean that some people are disadvantaged or, or are oppressed because of those structures. And it's the same with HIV, you know. So, I, I mean, indirect discrimination that, that I've faced in my life, I've lived with HIV for 18 years, you know, all my adult sexual life. You know, is people is saying that they won't, you know, they, they choose not to go into a relationship or, or have sex with me because I'm HIV positive. Well, actually, you know, I'm not a danger to anyone. Um, I'm on HIV medication. I can't pass it on. And it's actually, you're actually more at risk if you choose not to have sex with me. Yeah. Because that actually, and that sometimes blows people's minds. They don't kind of understand that. And I think the other indirect... Sorry, Nathaniel, ex- explain that just to people that are listening at the moment. Explain that. So yeah, so uh, so most new transmissions of HIV come from people who don't know they've got HIV. So HIV um, doesn't really present with that many symptoms. Um, when you when your body first recognises you've got it, you have like flu-like symptoms, but they generally pass quite quickly. And so often people don't put two and two together that they might have um, exposed themselves to HIV through. Um, and that they've, they've contracted it. So then what they might do is then, if they've not been tested and they don't know, they might go for a period of time not knowing they're HIV positive and pass it on. And that's where most new transmissions happen. So when people turn around to people like me and say, like, I'm not going to have sex with you because you're HIV positive, I'm like, well, I, I've given you the information. We know and we can make sure that we do it safely. I'm, I'm on medication, which means I can't pass it on. Or we could choose to use condoms. You know, there's all different ways in which you can protect yourself. So that's that's one of the main things about one of the reasons why it's so important for people to get tested regularly but i think the other is the indirect discrimination is the is the slightly more subtle attitudes people might have towards you as somebody who's got hiv so so there may be um i mean you know gareth i can't imagine what it felt like to be you know in the position you were put in being forced you know to come out in that way because there was there is this idea that somehow it is a scandal. It's it's newsworthy gossip that somehow you are immoral or that you have strayed from the moral norm or, you know, or that mm. you deserved it because you were somebody who had who slept around or, you know, all of those things. And actually, when you boil it right down, it's a virus. It's no different than the common cold. It's a virus. It's just passed through sexual contact. And unfortunately, 
some people find it very difficult to separate the, their, their own morality around sex and sexuality and a virus, which is just something that is, you know, trying to survive and live. So, th- so though it's that subtle stigma and discrimination that I think people with HIV still face. Um, guys, I, I watching the first one, uh, it's, I, it's a bit of a spoiler, but when Henry dies at the end, and it, it's, it's so moving, and it's so sad, and when he's in the room on his own, and then he leaves, and the nurses come in and scrub it, and I was quite judgy watching it. And then I thought about coronavirus, and the way people are going around scrubbing things, and, and, and when you think the way we dealt with this disease 10 months ago to the way we do now, largely out of ignorance and fear, um, it was a fear of the disease or was it a fear of the, the people who had it? I, I'm, I'm not really quite sure. I was left confused by the whole thing. Um, but it seemed to be slow to change from the 80s when you look back at the 80s. Nathaniel, your own story, you were diagnosed in 2002, 2003, am I right? That's right, But, yeah. but you, you still didn't feel, you still felt it was so stigmatised you, 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 you couldn't come out with, with, with the news? Yeah, I, I was. I mean, I mean, first of all, I was sixteen, or do, just so I was very, very young, you know. And I, I, I came out, you know, at sixteen. I met someone who was older than me. I, I, I that was probably my act of rebellion. We all have them as teenagers, don't we? Um, and I, I, I'd had the conversation about you know using condoms with my mom and all that sort of stuff. And so I think there was so much shame around the work that that I'd contracted it that I, I found it very, very difficult to be open. Um, you know, I, I was given, that was 18 years ago, I was given a prognosis. So I was given a shorter life expectancy than, than most other people. So it was a really traumatic event. Um, but I sort of pre- thought that it, I sort of made out to myself that it wasn't, you know, I just went, oh, this thing's happened. I'll get on with my life. And I did. And I carried on, you know, I went to college, went to university. I did everything I wanted to do, but it was eating away at me inside. And um, I don't know, Gareth, you might be able to um, kind of empathize with this how keeping secrets like that they 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 impact your ability to hold down relationships you know you start I started relying on alcohol and drugs because there was this pain there was this sadness that I'd not dealt with and that's that's when it got to a really bad point in 2017 when I said I've got to change this I have to say it out loud I have to work through this this trauma and this pain because you know it's gonna it, my life was just in such a bad place at that time. Yeah, that, just life becomes really difficult because I think what you do as well, see, is you 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 harbour this secret because you feel like you're protecting everybody else, but also kind of protecting yourself. But that means that you live uh, you live in fear. So you live in fear of people finding out. So you, I you know if I went, I don't know if I went to stay at my mates. Um, with a family, I live in fear of maybe someone going in my toilet bag and finding this tablet and questioning why I have this tablet. Um, or I live in fear of, of kind of doing something or not wanting to do something that I thought could potentially put other people um, other, other people at risk. And I think when you, lo- when you live in fear, you kind of, you, you lose control because you're lying, you're living in fear and you feel like you're kind of, Whatever you're destined to be, whatever you're destined to do, you're basically holding back on it because you can't be authentic in any way, shape, um, in a, in in any way, shape, or form. So it it, it harbors a massive, a massive amount of, of of pressure on how you live your daily life, and and almost to a point is where I, I think you've kind of become kind of reclusive. You know, I I, I was unsure that I couldn't pass it on, so I didn't want to have. I didn't really want to have a partner. 
um, because I thought I'm, if I tell somebody, I give somebody the information that makes me vulnerable to them. Um, so you'll, you you become very much recluse because it just it all of a sudden becomes about kind of protecting yourself. But by protecting yourself, you're protecting yourself from others as well. What was your yeah. fear, Nathaniel? I think, yeah, it's a similar sort of thing. It's like it becomes a very isolating experience, like Gareth just said. You know, I think what I did is that I stupidly was like, didn't want to talk to anyone about it. You know, I mean, my partners knew, of course, and a few friends knew, but, uh, you know, people were like, oh, why don't you go, you know, go and go to like George House Trust, which is the local HIV charity and meet other people, you know, and chat. And I was like, no, nah, no, nah. you know, I don't want to sit around in a circle and chat about my problems with people. That's not for me, you know, and all this sort of stuff and this. But actually over time, like Gareth says, I just became so isolated with it. And and my relationships with with people closest to me became strained because the more the more and more you hold this thing away, the, the, this truthful part of you away and you, you hide it, the more you you become distant. So, you know, my relationship, my parents became strained, you know, my my the relationships that I was in, you know, I was in a really toxic um, relationship with, with with two people who had not dealt with traumas from their past and we were playing those traumas out on each other you know and it was unfair on both of us um so yeah it became a very isolating experience and i think what i realized in 2017 is that i because i wasn't saying this thing out loud i actually believed the narrative that i hated so much and the narrative i hate is when people say it's something to be ashamed of because it's not it's nothing to be ashamed of it's just something i live with and i sort of was like oh my god by not saying it I'm self-stigmatizing. I'm putting that narrative on myself. And that's when I just changed, I decided to change the narrative and go, I'm going to say it. I mean, I did it pretty publicly. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that everyone needs to, you know, sit on the BBC breakfast couch with Charlie and Nagger. Or, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I was at one point trending higher than Jennifer Aniston's bangs on BuzzFeed. You know, I'm, not, I'm not saying everyone needs to go that far. But I think I think I felt, you know, I'm white, I'm middle class. I'm, you know, I'm a cisgendered man. I've, I have loads of privilege in this world. And so actually I went do you know what? I can say this and hopefully I can make a world or start to help to make a world that where it's safer for other people and for other people to feel more comfortable and confident to say to say the HIV positive because actually it's it's more treatable. It's easier to treat than diabetes, mm. you know. So um, so I really just wanted to change, start to change that narrative. And hopefully, you know, I think in the last two, three years, we've really seen a shift in how people are thinking about HIV. Can I put this to both of you to discuss um, mm. uh, the fear you both had and the reality then when you actually did tell everyone? Talk, talk to us about that. Um, well, uh, I think, I, think, I, cre- I, th- I think you create this fear as well because it justifies why you lie to everybody. You have to have some sort of justification and that was, that was my... But I, I had, like, I think, because I was blackmailed because of this information, because I had this this press, then then actually that justified why you felt so wrong. Because nobody blackmails you to tell you you're. I'm I'm going to tell every. I, you give me two hundred fifty grand, or I'm going to tell everyone you're brilliant. It's like we're well, going to tell everyone I'm brilliant, you know. Or you know, we're going to print this story about you being fantastic. So you don't, you know, the the. Sorry, how much will that cost? <laughs> uh, more than two hundred fifty grand for me. Let me tell you. Um, so I think other other forces had played part in in confirming why I shouldn't tell anyone because you know they they blackmail 
or the pre- the the fear of the press going to the story to write a negative arg- uh, negative um, story about me um, wasn't something I wanted. Um, but I feel, you know, what I feel the reality was. I don't know if Nathaniel felt this was that. When I was publicly honest about who I was, I was getting waves of support from people and people in the LGBT plus community because they they kind of had understood and had an empathy with um, with HIV because we we're, we're more at risk characteristic. But also, what I found was that people um, who have never had or may never have relevance to HIV understood somebody who has been put in a position of vulnerability and has decided to, t- to say, screw you. Like, I am taking control of my own life. I'm taking control of my own story and I'm telling it my way. And I choose to do it in a way that's empowering to other people. That's positive to the community of people I'm representing, but also positive to the community in in general. And I found by doing it that way, regardless whatever my narrative was, people engaged in it in that way and you know I don't know about Nathaniel but for me if I want a friend then one of the values I look for in a friend is honesty if that person tells me something I don't like I'm still going to respect him and like him because he's decided to be honest with me and I felt that's what I found people engage with most yeah absolutely I, I all of everything you've said just resonates so much and I think that you know your decision to to you know, it's awful that you were forcing that into that position, but your decision to go, no, this is my, this is my information. This is my life, my story. I, I'm going to own it. I'm going to tell it. And that authenticity just resonates so much with people. And also, I think what you, what happened in that moment is you really exposed, you know, the gutter press for what yeah, they are. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like, it was, you know, you, you, you killed two birds with one stone in yeah. a sense because it was absolutely just so atrocious. And I couldn't believe, you know, I watched with almost with horror at that happening. Um, and I just thought, is this where we're at, you know, uh, with the press still? Um, you know, for me, absolutely the same, you know, b- becoming authentic. I, up until the point I, I I told my family in 2017 and then I made my solo show first time in 2018 and that's when I sort of told the world up until that point you know my life had sort of just bubbled along I'd sort of just got by you know I'd, I'd had some success as an actor you know little bits here and there um you know I was kind of just getting by but actually it never really gone in the direction that I, I I'd hoped it had and I realized it was because I wasn't living authentically and it was in it was also interlinked to my my identity as a gay man you know and, and never navigating the acting world the arts industry although it's run by gay people is actually still quite a homophobic environment so you know I was used I used to was told to sort of reduce you know hide my gayness or tone it down you know for different things and 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 in 2017 i just went no i'm not doing that anymore i'm i'm bored of reducing who i am or making myself smaller or less uh, because i want i don't want people to choose me or ha- or have me in their life if it's if it's not the real me mm. so you know the minute i went this is who i am you know what's and all and also my show doesn't pay, it doesn't necessarily paint me as the hero believe me <laughs> you know it's it, it it it's complicated it's messy um but the minute i did that all the right people stood up and took notice you know um i i was asked to audition for it's a sin because the producer um of of the show had had seen my my show so the minute mm. i started telling authentic stories was the minute 
you know, the magic happened and, and continues to happen. You know, I'm, I'm sat here chatting with you two. What an amazing opportunity, <laughs> you know, for a kid, kid from Stockport who, age 16, you know, got this diagnosis and, and thought his life was over in a sense. It's amazing, isn't it? If you're not true to yourself, you cannot reach all those things you're capable of reaching. I mean, it's a very similar story for you, Gareth. I still... Nathaniel, I'm still baffled at how Gareth achieved all he did in his rugby career um, with carrying around this this burden. I, I just, I don't know. And I wonder sometimes, do you think if you had been more open earlier, could you have achieved more? Would it have been different for you? Um, listen, I think, and, and maybe Nathaniel, I'm assuming, thinks the same as, as I'd like to be able to have the hindsight to go back and manipulate and change things but I know I never can so I don't kind of waste the energy thinking about them all, all I do like Nathaniel does is I put my energy now into making sure people have the environments, environments where they don't have to make that decision anymore because I always think about moments moments in my life where I was so focused and the main priority was like hiding my sexuality or the main priority was hiding my HIV diagnosis that for days, weeks, months, years, I never actually fucking lived. I just survived. I just got along. And I wonder what I could have done in them years of being lived. And there's no way that I can stop ever wondering about that. But I think what's, what's so great about when you become a part of a community um, or become a part of a characteristic that people feel like they can prejudice against is you really want to fight to make sure you do your best to stop that prejudice happening to other people. Um, and I think that's, you know, this is the first time I, I know of Nathaniel, obviously, but this is the first time I've spoken to him. And I feel like this real synergy of two people who have been through the mill and are not bitter about being through the mill, but are, are passionate about making sure that other people don't go through that same mill and it never exists for other people anymore. Yeah, I think I think the, the thing you can do with your life. I mean, we all we all face trauma in our lives. Like you know, it's, it, that's just part of being human, isn't it? You know, we're always going to love and lose people we love, and we're all going to face ill health at different points in our lives, and things are going to happen to us. And one of the things that um, you know, my I I, I my mum is very good at, at, at drilling this into me. Is it's like you can either become a victim in the story of your life or you can become the hero in the story of your life and you know and it's hard it's really hard sometimes because you do have days where you wallow in your own self-pity believe me you know like on i come across in interviews people always send me messages on instagram or twitter they're like god you're always so happy and so smiley i'm like yeah on camera of course <laughs> i am you know when i'm chatting to lorraine i'm of course i'm gonna be smiling because it's lorraine kelly it's and lorraine. A legend. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what i mean but it but of course i still have all those demons you know behind closed doors you know at those things still happen and you have to look after yourself um but 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 yeah i think it's about um when you've when you break through manage to break through like if you if you manage to come out you know if you're you're lesbian gay bisexual or trans or you know or you something like living with hiv and you want you you start to live authentically and you get across that challenge um yeah it 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 opens up a world of possibilities. But in a similar way to what Gareth said, I don't look back at my past self and go, uh, you know, and beat myself up about the things that happened or the things that I did. Because, you know, those are those all those things, both good and bad, have have built who I am today. Um, and it's just part of, you know, the, the, the story of your own life, isn't it? 
Look, thankfully, we know so much more about HIV from those awful days back in the 80s. uh, And medicines got better, treatments got better. You cannot pass it on through sexual contact. We know that. You can live a very happy, long life. But do you both still have... Because it's it's an enormous sentence. I have HIV. It's still a big sentence. Do you still have moments of, of fear with that? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's changed dramatically in the 18 years that I've lived with HIV. When I was first diagnosed, you weren't put onto medication straight away. So I lived about eight years without medication. And I had to live with with the the knowledge that I was, and I hate saying this and put it in inverted commas, I was infectious. You know, I could pass it on. I had a a long-term partner at the time. We used condoms. Thankfully, he remained negative. But there was always this anxiety around sex, which was really, really hard thing to carry and then when and then when we found out about you know undetectable equals untransmissible and it's scientifically proven that i can't pass it on and then also we now know about prep as well pre-exposure prophylaxis which is the drugs that people can take preemptively so my new partner he is on prep and i'm on medication so you know belt and braces were really both uh, protected so loads of that anxiety is gone but yeah sometimes it you do have days where it hits you you know sometimes i i look in the drawer which is just to my left which has got my hiv medication in and, and i go if that medication wasn't there that was taken away that you know I'm going to get sick. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I know there was all sorts, of, all sorts of worries around Brexit and medications not being available and, you know, them potentially being taken away. So although we're, we're so blessed and so lucky, we have the NHS and we have the healthcare provided, you know, there is that sense of if that's taken away, that's that's it for you. So you do live knowing that there is something inside you that is 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 lethal. And that's that's quite a lot to carry. And and, and that's something that comes up quite a lot in my therapy sessions with my therapist. <laughs> yeah, but also I think the thing, I, I actually think, so for me, like Nathaniel, I went from having a secret that I wanted no one to know about to all of a sudden having this this thing of openness that is still very personal to me. You like allowing people into your personal life, even though they, they, they have no need to know about your personal life at all. So it, become, it can become quite invasive. And therefore, when something becomes invasive or you feel vulnerable, you kind of assess situations. So you assume everybody knows, but you don't. You never assume that everybody's okay with it. So you can walk into environments where all of a sudden you're, this, you're almost like a vulnerable sitting target. Um, and you feel, why should I have to walk around? feeling vulnerable but uh, for me and i think this comes from a more of a sporting element for me fear is also one of my biggest motivations my biggest drives because if i'm fearful of it um then i realize that we still have work to do we still have things to do nathaniel needs to keep going on lorraine show and people (laughs) people need to be speaking on public platforms to stop the fear to negate the fear um and 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 so for me it's 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 very much um a source of motivation it's not it's not something i continue to want to have it's something i strive to never have but it is a motivation to understand that I still have to. And I don't know about you, do you sometimes now, especially since this program, like, do you feel you have to assess environments sometimes? 
Um, do you know what? Not well. I've not been anywhere, Gareth, because of the bloody oh, lockdown. Oh, so uh, <laughs> oh, God. Well, I've only yeah. been one place, which is the supermarket. And, and do you know what? No one, thankfully, no one's recognised me yet because we're all wearing face masks. <laughs> but I know some of the other cast members. I just can't walk down the street without being recognised. Um, no, but I, do you know the biggest thing actually was when I made my solo show first time, and there was a huge in 2018. There was this huge whirlwind of media around it, and it, my story was, and I mean, it was shared globally. It was it was all over the world um and i did, did these four shows and then the week after you know took took a week off i was exhausted you know or just trying to recover um, and then i went to get my hair cut at barbers and and that's quite a macho environment you know and sometimes lots of you know gay men sometimes we feel uncomfortable in certain environments you know i don't walk into a working men's club and, and instantly <laughs> feel welcome and i know Often that is sometimes just my own internalized preconceptions of what those people are going to think. But I was in the barber's chair and he asked me what I did. And I almost sort of just glossed over it. And then I went, no, you've just done all this stuff. You've just stood up on stage and said, yeah, HIV positive. You've just said that you've got to break down the stigma. And I was like, this is the cold face mm. of breaking down people's attitudes. And so I just went for it and just said, you know, I'm HIV positive. I've just made this show about it. Google me. You'll find me on BuzzFeed. You know, it was like, and it was this huge shift and moment where I went, I... I need to live live what I preach in a sense, but yeah, it is hard, and and some days you do just want to blend into the background, mm. you know, and and just you know have it have an easy life. Um, so yeah, so it's a real balancing act, I think. And um, thank you both, by the way, for sharing that with everybody because that's a very personal thing to share. I, I think everyone really appreciate that. Um, we appreciate the work you're doing, both of you, and you have to continue it. I want to give you these numbers and I'm hoping they're changing with It's a Sin Show going out. Last year, um, there was a Tackle HIV survey of 4,000 people. Here are the headlines. 61% of people said that if they found out a potential partner was HIV positive, they would or might end the relationship. Almost half, 49% of people think HIV can still be passed on even if the person is on effective treatment. We know it can't be, okay? More than one in three people, 34%, said they would not play a contact sport if they knew one of their opponents had HIV. Both of you, with all the work you're, you're doing and have done in the past, how do you feel about the future when you hear those kind of numbers? Uh, I, I think for me, it's, it's the reality of the world we live in. I think that, you know, I can't sit here, Nathaniel can't sit there because we both know that that is the case because... I know I have, I'm sure Nathaniel have, have lived experiences of, of coming across people like that. But I get what that does for me, and I'm sure, I'd like to think it does the same for Nathaniel. He can speak in what he's now. Is, is, is it means that what I'm doing, what you're doing, what the show is doing, is needed um, and is relevant. Even though the show was based in the 80s, the relevance of what it does to people living in 2021 is still hugely important. Yeah, abso absolutely. And it's it does sometimes when I see surveys like that, and it does it does surprise me that those that those attitudes are still out there. And I think the thing that I've I've done as I've grown, and you know, I've lived with HIV for for more more of more of my life. I've been HIV positive than I haven't, and I've learned that there is a level to how much I can educate people, and it's not it's not my responsibility either. Do you know what I mean? You know, I 
used to <laughs> tell prospective partners I was HIV positive, you know, and they'd sort of reject me or say, you know, all this sort of stuff. And then I try and educate them. And I'm like, oh, do you know what? I'm not going to waste my breath anymore. Mm. The information is out there. Go out and do the education yourself. You know, go and get tested regularly because it's not just... You know, it's not just my responsibility to, to end HIV. So it, as I've got older, I've relaxed a little bit more. I know those attitudes are out there. And what I try and do is spread a, a positive and joyful message and surround myself with the people that support that. And if people choose to 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 direct hate or negativity towards that, I just tell them where to go. Just Good, do man. One. Good man. Good <laughs> man. Nathaniel, it's been absolutely brilliant. It's been great talking to him, hasn't it? Oh, really it's been is. brilliant. Yeah, so yeah. good. Thank it's you. not often that someone's personality, um, you know, uh, it matches their wallpaper. <laughs> uh, you know, so fair play. Like that's some effort. Look, really good talking to you, and and, and just look, keep up all the good work, and and, and you know, you're doing a fine job, and. Um, it's just really, really interesting to have someone coming on and being so honest yeah, and sharing brilliant. everything because every bit helps. Any message before you go to the people listening to this podcast? Get tested. <laughs> That's it. Order a test, freetesting.hiv. If you're sexually active every six to 12 months, get yourself a HIV test. It's a little finger prick test you do at home. You find out very, very quickly. Um, and then if you, you know, if you get a positive result, you're going to get amazing healthcare. You're going to be fine, happy and healthy, but it means that you're protecting yourself and you're protecting your partners. And then hopefully by 2030, we'll have ended all new transmissions of HIV. There you go. Simple. Simple. Nathaniel, I can hear a dog that needs to be walked in the background. <laughs> yes, that is my, you, my dog. You better go do that. Thank you so much for your time. Really Thank you, Nathaniel, it. mate. All Thank you, bud. You're a ledge. Thank you, man. <laughs>